Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The true happiness is the absence of the search for happiness. You know, there's things that we do and it hurts physically, but what I'm really eradicating and getting rid of for people is suffering, which does belong, I would say, exclusively to the idea of ourselves. The quote I use, I say, you know, there's always somewhere to get to until you realize there isn't. That also can only happen when there's the absence of resistance. The life is the way it is. Now you've got difficult circumstance and your own personal resistance. That's a double whammy. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. Above everything else, people want to feel happy and to experience freedom from suffering. It's not the car, the promotion or the relationship we really want. It's the happiness we believe we would derive from such things. But what if the very act of seeking happiness was exactly the thing that was stopping us from experiencing it? That is the essence of this week's conversation with Peter Crone. He calls himself the mind architect and he's got 20 years of experience training and coaching elite athletes and world-renowned artists, including Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Peter says his work is not about solving problems, but about dissolving them. You see, the brain is a prediction-making machine. So it creates problems at the level of thought and then goes about trying to solve the imagined problem at the very same level at which it's been created. As you hopefully can see, that's not a recipe for success. 
The answer lies in inquiring into the places where we appear not to be free and questioning the reality of those assumptions. That is the nature of the game of life. This was a really fun episode to record and I'd be ever so grateful if you could share it as it does make it easier for people to find this podcast in what is an awfully crowded space. So thank you in advance for that. And first, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Peter Crone. Peter Crone, how are you? I'm excellent, mate. Nice to be with you, Simon. Uh, Peter, (laughs) I'm thrilled to have you on. As you know, I'm a big fan of your work. What you are putting out there really resonates with me in terms of things like getting out of our own way, letting go of the stories that we tell about ourselves and about the world, and particularly one that that I really has been very important in my life is, is understanding that we don't need fixing. And have you have you got anything to add to that or to say to what I've just said there? I mean, firstly, thank you <laughs> would be the first thing. Uh, it's always, you know, moving and touching for me to be with people who have been impacted by my work in a positive way. So, you know, I love your enthusiasm. But yes, to the latter part of your introduction, for sure, I'm looking from the perspective of there's nothing wrong with anyone. And I think that you know, most people find that very liberating when they really get it, you know, because yeah. uh, the whole self-help industry does an amazing job of perpetuating the idea that there is something wrong with you. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting because I feel like there's no way, what's the expression? No way through, but through, if you like. And yeah. I think, you know, for me, understanding about that I didn't need fixing, I think yeah. I needed to go on the journey to try and fix myself to understand that I didn't need fixing. Correct. Does that resonate with you a bit? A hundred percent. Yeah. The the quote I use, I say, you know, there's always somewhere to get to until you realize there isn't. Yeah. <laughs> so I sort of speak in these Zen Cohen type, you know, forms. And so there is always something to work on until you realize, oh, there isn't anything to work on. Now that doesn't, you know, therefore mean that we just stop living and we sit on our laurels. There's always room for expansion. But as it relates to some sort of deeper seated sense of insecurity or inadequacy, that becomes reconciled. And that's, you know, that's freedom, that's liberation. Then it becomes much more a journey of exploring one's potential versus trying to fix one's uh, imperfections. Yeah. Exploration v. control and v. trying to prove and all that kind of stuff. And and that's something I really want to dig into. But, But let's start, though, Peter, with your story. And mm-hmm. how you've got to where you are, because it's a it's a fascinating one. I mean, it's been a it's been an interesting journey on a number of levels, yeah. and you know, and it started. Well, first of all, I got to say, I know you've been in America for a couple of decades. I've got to tip my cap to you. You've held on to your uh, English accent remarkably well. <laughs> so, congratulations well, on that. Thank you, darling. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you you had a. A tough start and most obviously with your parents. So can you just tell me the or tell us, share the story of what happened there, please? Uh, For sure. And and thank you. It's always, again, you know, um, touching when people are curious to hear my background. Oftentimes people just want to get information for themselves and not necessarily 
that interested in whoever's speaking in terms of their own background. But um, yes, we, we, we all go through our trials and tribulations. So by no means do I want to denote myself as some kind of special case. But it was a, definitely a unique childhood. My mum uh, passed off cancer when I was seven years old. So for a little boy, you can imagine that was obviously both trying but confusing. There's there's not really much a seven-year-old can do in terms of processing the death of a parent and really understanding it, especially from cancer. And I know she w- had been sick, you know, for a couple of years, sort of from when I was about four or five, and they were doing everything they could. But nonetheless, that was, I feel like, a pivotal point in my life, maybe in ways that at the time, and for certainly many years after, I didn't fully comprehend. Um, and then I think, you know, the the real turning point for me was when I was 17, my dad worked on what, you know, our fellow Brits know as the ferries going from Dover to Calais and Dover to Zeebrugge in Belgium. And he went to work one day in 1987 and uh, never came back. It was the Herald of Zeebrugge, you know, the the disaster that happened mm. um, with the, the Townsend Torreson. But, uh, you know, that, that was, that was really, I would say that was a much bigger moment in my life than my mum dying. Cause you know, he was then my only care provider, shall we say, like uh, I was the only child, so I didn't have siblings. And um, yeah, that was, that was a real kind of, cosmic slap around the face not really understanding the nature of life or why and all the questions of like why me and this isn't fair and um you know by no means was my dad the only one affected in my family there were you know hundreds of people who died um and i had become incredibly close to my dad as one would imagine just by virtue of the decade of the two of us you know subsequent to my mum's passing so there was such an incredible connection there and he was such an extraordinary man like i wouldn't have I couldn't have asked for a better dad, you know, who was loving and never hit me. There was no berating. He wasn't mercurial with his emotions or his attitude. He didn't scream or shout at me. Just a just a very, you know, cuddly teddy bear type man who just adored me. And I can only imagine the the pain that he'd gone through for his wife to pass and then to sort of be left with his son who he adored. And that was the channel for his his love and adoration. So you can imagine I, I, I got a lot of it. Um, so yeah, so uh, that was definitely a unique uh, experience for any child, uh, but nonetheless was obviously formative in the man that I became. So um, it led to a lot of spiritual sort of conversations and deeper dives into the nature of life. And um, as I said, it, it really became the foundation upon which I, I built my own persona, my career, and a lot of surrender and acceptance to the nature of the uncertainty of life, you know, which for a lot of people is very scary, but once embraced is very liberating. Yeah. A lot of people say, don't they, that that pain is the greatest teacher and sounds like for you, that's very much been the case. But when, for example, your father did not come home. Yeah. How would you describe how you how you felt and how that impacted you at that time over those over those next year you know couple of years former you know such important years as well sort of seventeen yeah. 
Yeah, it was tough because at the time I was doing my A-levels, you know, I was in the sixth form and um, obviously British, I, I don't know what's going on with education nowadays, I'm showing my age. Hasn't but, changed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, in the six years, uh, the sixth form, you know, doing my A-levels, so obviously there was quite an aberration in my process there while I, I dropped out of school for a minute just to deal with whatever I had to deal with for a good two or three months. So suffice to say, you know, that impacted my studies and my predictions. And, you know, they have this, I guess they can, to some degree, try and predict what it is that a student is going to accomplish. And so I was looking at the Oxford and Cambridges and, you know, the, the predicted I was doing four A-levels, which at the time was an anomaly. They were only doing three, but they felt I could take on another one. So, you know, it was kind of like, oh, Peter's going to get three A's and a B or something there in that ballpark. And uh, I ended up, you know, really kind of falling very short of that because I missed so much time. So that was that was definitely part of what happened, you know, within that short period after my dad's uh, passing. I think in terms of my work, to answer your question, the thing that was most pivotal, honestly, I was standing in my bedroom, which was the room that I grew up in. There was, a, there was a couple of years where we'd lived in a house literally three doors down on the same street. But I, was, I think we moved when I was about three. So I don't really have any recollection of that. But this house I'd lived in and, you know, from three to 17, I was standing in my bedroom. And I can remember this blue carpet. And I, I was by myself. And it was... At the time, I didn't understand the, the, the poignance of what I was going through or the depth of power of experiencing true isolation, true separation and true aloneness. You know, loneliness is something else, but alone as a visceral experience versus a lot of people can be in a marriage and they feel lonely, right? So they're not actually alone, mm. but emotionally they feel disconnected. Sure. So at the time, it was just... It was such a, uh, I don't want to be melodramatic, but it was just such a horrific feeling of complete isolation. And I just stood there, you know, and it's like, there's nothing, you know. And so at the time, my personal subjective experience was of complete and utter loneliness, isolation, and with that, a degree of desperation. In now hindsight, what that translated into was a massive amount of compassion for the people that I work with, because even though their circumstances may not resemble mine, they could be married, they might have kids, siblings, parents might still be alive. The experience of the ego is nonetheless a semblance of that sense of isolation. So even though mine was, we could argue, visceral and actual, Everybody else's, which is experiential, is nonetheless very similar, for which reason that really set the stage for me to have an immense amount of love and compassion for when people feel that sense of desperation, feel that sense of isolation, and with it, all the emotions of depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. Um, it was really, it was pinpointing that experience of a human being, which is the I that we think we are that is separate from everything else so mm. just quickly i don't go too deep at this stage but you just said there in the eye that we think we are yeah separate from everything else and the stories we form are all around this this eye or the me yes. um do you think you know the the suffering that 
most of us experience beyond, let's say, the pain of, that is inherent in life yeah. is born of that uh, identifying with that that I and and the the feeling of separation, the feeling of being separate. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like, and you articulated it beautifully. Um, and I know from what you've discussed, you've done a lot of work in that realm, or like whether we call it non-dualism, or understanding the difference and the difference between sort of an identity or a persona that we think ourselves to be versus the essence, perhaps, of who we are. So yeah, so you articulated it perfectly. All the suffering, and I would distinguish suffering from pain, as you did. Pain is really physiological; it's unavoidable as a sentient organism. We're going to stub our toe on the coffee table and spill hot drinks on our wrists and you know the things that we do and it hurts physically but what i'm really eradicating and getting rid of for people is suffering which does belong i would say exclusively to the idea of ourselves yes we'll get into that again in a bit but let's pick, <laughs> pick your story up because okay. uh it, so, back in the bedroom you know, we, we've left you we've left we've left you back in that bedroom By so yourself. moving forward i know i know you're a you know a very talented sportsman i know you you know you've you've coached tennis quick question is, t- is tennis your favorite sport uh favorite i don't know i i it's definitely in the top five i'd say you right. know it's sort of a, on any given day it's between tennis golf skiing and Table tennis and pool, but I'm not sure pool really qualifies as a sport. But I <laughs> yeah, still no. take I still take that's a, uh, Yeah, that's a drinking activity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but okay, no, you ended up at Loughborough, the university for people who are sporty in a nutshell. Yeah, uh, yeah. I know as well, having done my research, that so your nickname uh, was uh, Perfect Peter. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which I think, Thanks which is revealing in and of itself. Because <laughs> yeah. so there, there was no. an armor there, right? The Perfect Peter. That was yeah. an armor, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, it was a compensation pattern and um, not one that I'm proud of, but at least again, from my perspective of compassion, I was doing the best I could as a anyone, you know, trying to survive. And perfectionism is, uh, it seems pretty ubiquitous on the planet, something that people grapple with, you know? So you were at Loughborough and you were studying, I can't remember the name of your course, but it basically is about the body and how the body works. And what yes. was the actual Human- name of it? Human biology, and then I also added exercise physiology. Yeah, right. From there, you decide yeah. to, you know, head over to America. What for, like a, a quick stopover? Yes. And you weren't planning on staying, were you? No, I, I, I went over actually initially for a summer to coach tennis. To um, how can I put this in a polite fashion? Incredibly sport and entitled wealthy children. <laughs> Very <laughs> who, politely put. Yeah. Who uh, had no qualms about telling me who was paying my paycheck? You know, this like eleven-year-old <laughs> punk, punk. You know, thanks very much. Um, yeah. No, so that was fun. I uh, it was a. Uh, it's very typical here in the states for kids to be shipped off to. The summer camp, and I, I think there's a lot to be said for it. You know, six to eight weeks, they go and learn sports. They they do social activities. They have to bunk with other children, and you know, so there's a there's a growth there in many arenas of life for children. So I was one of the tennis coaches. I went there for originally, you know, um, I think it was two months for the camp, and then I traveled around, like you know, in very traditional backpacky way, mm. for about three weeks. Um, and then I did go back the subsequent summer. They wanted me to run the tennis program because, of course, being perfect Pete, you know, I did everything immaculately. <laughs> Thank God I got rid of that. That was exhausting. Um, but anyway, um, then having met a couple of people there at the camp, other counselors, you know, my peers, one moved to uh, California. He was always interested in making films. And I hadn't been to the West Coast. This camp was uh, upper state New York, so on the East Coast. 
And uh, I was like, well, you know, I'd finished my then master's. I stayed and did a master's at Loughborough as well. And I was originally going to travel around the world with a friend of mine who was arguably the world's greatest procrastinator. And so even though I'd done my thesis, he was, I God knows, I don't even want to know what he was doing, but it wasn't his thesis. <laughs> so I was like, listen, while you twiddle your thumbs, you know, in the most British way, I'll, uh, I'm going to go and visit this friend of mine in California. And um, to sort of the, I think the lead of your question, I, I never actually really left. <laughs> no, you never left, right? And then uh, just to, uh, a quick overview of how I know all this. I mean, of course, I've okay. done my research, but as well, you posted on social media recently these bullet points of some key moments along your journey. And I know it had a huge right. impact. And, yeah. you know, for example, and I know just from memory that, you know, one of them was, so you were at the gym where you were a PT and you, you had to get the bi your bicycle there and you were the first yeah. in and you were last out, you know, 4.30 a.m., rain or yeah. shine, last yeah. person out. And, mm -hmm. you know, perfect Pete, the clients were rolling <laughs> in and you were doing really yeah. well. And then all yeah. of a sudden, metaphoric pat on the shoulder. And it's like, right, we've got a couple of particularly special clients for you. So can you just Correct. pick the story up at this point, please? For sure. Um, and I'd like to, before the audience starts to like, you know, put me in the pigeonhole of Perfect P, I think by then I sort of was over it. I was just more dedicated, shall we say. Okay. Um, okay. But I was working hard. And um, yes, the general manager of the, the gym that I was training at, and I'd only been there about five months, so, but she came to me, as you said, and said, we've got a couple more clients for you. And they're quite special. At that point, I was really, you know, the sort of go-to trainer. There was probably about 30 trainers in the gym. And I by virtue of my commitment to my work and my background in exercise physiology and my own athletic abilities, you know, it was a good smorgasbord of resources to really transform people's bodies. So I was getting great results. So I was like, yeah, sure, bring them on. And, and um, turned out they were what, what we then knew as Bob's clients. <laughs> and Bob, everybody knew Bob because he was the other trainer in the gym who he wasn't always there. He was traveling because he would travel a lot with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. So really, that's the moment the penny dropped when they, you know, the general manager said, well, they're Bob's clients. And I knew Bob, so I spoke to him for a minute. And he's like, yeah, I've got, you know, family, two kids. I'm done with all the travel. So they've asked me to try and find a replacement. So I was by no means the only chosen one. There were, I think, two or three other uh, trainers from that gym. And, you know, he was doing his due diligence to make sure that there was a worthwhile replacement. And um, suffice to say, I, I got the gig. And so... Uh, here I am, some young punk from Dover. All right, mate, yeah, he's from Dover, <laughs> isn't he? You know, no parents, end up in LA, and now I'm traveling around on a G5 jet with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman sculpting their abs. You know, it's like totally yeah. typical journey, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, yeah, it's it's, it's been a pretty bog standard one thus far. Um, <laughs> right, did, so did boring. You, yeah, yeah. Did, did you think to yourself... Did you have those pinch yourself moments or did it happen so naturally that you were just like, yeah, this is normal? I, I think at the moment, of course, I was, uh, like anyone would be, incredibly excited by the potential. I think even by at that point, I tried, I think I've done a pretty good job of learning not to get ahead of myself in life just by virtue of all the uncertainty that I'd experienced. So, you know, there was the excitement, but equally, I didn't want to have the attachment, you know, to the outcome. So there was a degree of like, wow, this is crazy kind of conversations with whoever my friends were at the time. And I think the way that it unfolded too, I had three interviews before I even met Tom. And then I met Tom, he was shooting Jerry Maguire at the time. So I went to the lot and, you know, I, he asked me to take him for a workout and that went well. And then I sat on his, you know, 
uh, bus, I guess, like his personal <laughs> bus, you know, and we started talking logistics of uh, money and when would I start, would I be free and can I fly to New York tomorrow to meet his wife? And, you know, the way that that world introduced me to a different sort of, you know, the logistics, the operations of that kind of level, because it was 20 minutes from where I lived at the time, which was, excuse my French, but a bit of a shithole, you know, that I was living on the carpet for the first year. <laughs> it's amazing how things change. But um, so within 20 minutes of leaving Tom, having had this workout interview, talked some numbers, you know, I get home. And at that point, again, I'm showing my age, but there was a fax that had my whole whole itinerary of my flight to New York, where I'm staying, my contact, you know, people there. And, you know, there was just a level of efficiency that I had aspired to throughout my life. But it was in action, you know, it was the actual demonstration of it. So uh, those were some of the pinch me moments, but in a way that really resonated with me. So it felt very natural. It didn't, I, at no point did I feel like I was uh, an imposter or, you know, over my boots or whatever they say, you know, it was, um, yeah. yeah, it was, it was a very, very natural integration. And yet something that I feel incredibly blessed to have got to experience. Tom's known for his enthusiasm, you know, he's, he, <laughs> yes. he, you know, like, uh, yeah, I, yeah, when you were speaking, and, you know, you said that he said, take me for a workout. I sort of had this image in my head of perhaps like a sort of top gun volleyball high five moment, something like that, you know, um, chest, chest bumping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but between us, Peter, so what, what, what what's he like? And what are they like between us? Yeah, just between you and I, no one else. <laughs> I love him to death. He's a beautiful human being. I've got nothing bad to say about either of them. I feel very fortunate to have got a bird's eye view and a fly on the wall view and everything in between of a life that they lead, that they've curated and they've worked hard to, you know, obviously they're not together now, but that they worked hard to create for themselves. And flying on private jets to, you know, big villas in Monaco and, oh, oh sorry, actually Morocco is where we went on a holiday once, but um, in Monaco, if you want it, it's fine. <laughs> you know. I mean, it was just amazing. We did Eyes Wide Shut with Stanley Kubrick, which brought me back to London, which was amazing because I got to see all of my idiotic friends from university who still procrastinating want, and yeah. still, yeah, <laughs> still drinking way too much. <laughs> um so um, yes, it was um, it was an amazing experience. Great people, very enthusiastic. He, it, what Tom taught me particularly was just a, a real, an extraordinary level of dedication and commitment and professionalism with his craft. You know, there was nothing taken for granted just because of who he was. His preparation for anything that he did was impeccable. And same with Nicole. You know, they were just really, you know. Um, they were they were students of their industry perpetually, but yet they were masters, you know. And I, I loved to see that that there was no sort of oh, whatever. Let's just sort of mail this one in. Who cares? I'll pick up a few million dollars and thanks very much. It sure, was, yeah, yeah. you know, they just they just live great lives. So very fortunate. And the way we perceive <clears throat> things is obviously a key element of what you talk about and this whole stuff and. Just very quickly, people say perceive someone like Tom Cruise in a certain way. How different are perceptions that people tend to have of people like that from the reality? I mean, that's a how long's a piece of string question, isn't it? Because I think there's going to be, excuse me, some people out there in the world of, 
you know, whether we call it celebrity or notoriety, that I would like to think are pretty authentic. And so for that reason, you're as a viewer, as a fan, as a member of a cinema audience, you, you have a connection. You feel like you do know them as a person. And then I think at the other extreme, you do have people who, for the most part, it's a complete front, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's total pretense, you know, and it's pretty ugly what goes on behind the scenes. And so I would say Tom and Nicole are much more at the authentic end. So I'd say there's a much greater resonance between how most people probably perceive them and who they are. I think that, you know, they're just good people living their lives and, yeah, they want to keep some things private, like the most, you know, the rest of us. And, but for the most part, they're just, they're just genuine people. Nice. Right. That's covered your story, right? Up to the point at which <laughs> then, so, so you've jetting around with A-listers, you're getting your Monaco's mixed up with your Morocco's. I mean, it's anything to begin with them. at that level, right? <laughs> Yeah. And then, but then, so now your moniker is the mind architect. I think of it, and tell me to shut up, but more of a sort of a, a mind disassembler in some ways, you know, like a, you know, yeah. like an, yeah, a mind absolutely. excavator, but it doesn't have quite the same ring to it. But um, <laughs> so, so how did you make that switch? Um, I think, you know, without getting too poetic, like our soul always knows that there's some transition um, pending. And so even. I had a great gig with Tom and Nicole, and I certainly knew that there was a little bit of unrest in the family, you know, between them and could have maybe predicted their separation. And so it's not that I wanted to avoid that, but I could sort of see a natural exit point for me when that happened between them, combined with a deeper feeling of like I had a lot more to offer. Not that that job wasn't, you know, incredibly fulfilling and um, satisfying, but I was like, you know, I'm my own version of Tom in a different industry. And I'd always been fascinated with the mind. I'd always, you know, Nicole was a, she loved philosophy. So she and I would talk much more at length than maybe Tom and I about the deeper questions of life, you know. And so that was definitely uh, some of the groundwork that led me to then my next chapter of my next career. Um, So there was, there was a, a, what I call a seasonal transition, you know, it wasn't like a overnight event. There were definitely a few months, couple of years and even honestly, at Loughborough that you'd mentioned, I was there at university, one of my dear friends that I really spent a lot of time with sitting under the quintessential tree, you know, guy, um, we would talk about the nature of consciousness back then when I was a ripe oh. old 19, 20 wow. year old. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was always there in the background. And I was reading books, even though I was sculpting bodies, you know, more to do with spirituality and some of these Eastern philosophies. So it was, again, a very natural segue for me. Um, the Mind Architect moniker, that sort of dipped in and out early on. And then I was called a happiness guru, a hitman for the ego, you know, spiritual oh, teacher. I like that like, one, hitman, the hitman for the yeah, ego. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I like anything that's a bit unique. Otherwise, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's contaminated and people are so lazy with their listening. They think they know what something is, you know. So yeah, yeah, sure. that's really what led to the Mind Architect because it was... It was unique um, and it, it warranted uh, further investigation for most people. They wanted to understand what that meant, which then allowed me to extrapolate so that they didn't just uh, live on assumption. Right. So let's then talk about what you do do. So this is so you've been doing it now for sort of 20 years. <laughs> yeah. So to what degree is this right? You lead people home, if you like. Um, yeah. And how would you how would you summarize, you know, what you do? And just to say as well, obviously, for people who, who aren't hugely familiar with your work 
you're in hugely high demand with elite sports people in America. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you work with golfers, people from the NBA. I mean, so yeah. this really translates beautifully to to performance, to to sport. So, what do you do? And then maybe as well, just bring it slightly into that sporting sphere. So the first part of your question, how would I sum it up? I, I have again, I use catchphrases because I write in quotes, and I say. Um, I, I don't solve problems, I dissolve them. So that's to your point about leading people home. So my, my work is very much a dissolution process. Like I would assert that the human part that we touched on a minute ago, the I that we believe ourselves to be is a construct that gets formulated during our formative years as children. So really we're a walking conversation, which yeah. is you know perhaps a lot for people to comprehend having maybe never heard of me, but they're like, wait, what did he just say? Yeah, you're a walking conversation, you're a dialogue, you know? <laughs> and so really what I'm doing is, um, you know, removing any of that narrative and that dialogue that is uh, a disservice to somebody, you know, the worlds of I'm not enough or, or no one loves me. Where, where does that exist? It exists in a conversation that you have that you think is who you are, and then you've got evidence from your history to reinforce it. So in the dissolution of that, then there is the revealing of something beneath that, which I would assert is your real essence, which is freedom, you know, and that we can call awakening or enlightenment. So when we extrapolate that into the arena of performance, especially with my athletes, anything that is in the way of somebody doing what they do naturally by virtue of the fact that they've done their 10,000 hours plus, you know, children playing golf when they're three and tennis players at four and my baseball players going through little league and whatever it is, they've done something for usually two plus decades. And so their body and brain know what to do. uh, We could say somewhat effortlessly. What gets in the way is the significance that the mind then attributes to the event, you know, especially if it's like a golf and it's a major event, the British Open or the Masters. <clears throat> then, uh, uh, you know, I've worked with women on the LPGA too. So either it's a man or a woman holding golf clubs that they're more than familiar with, hitting a golf ball that they know what to do. But within the context of, oh my gosh, it's a major event and I could win one to $5 million. Or, well, there's no person. $5 million, but you know, and then the men's, you can get up to 2.7. And if you win the whole year, you get 15. So we're talking some serious cash, let's face it. Um, it changes, you know, the chemistry of somebody's brain, and then the way that their body responds to that, and they have some tension and anxiety. And so it gets in the way of what they would otherwise do quite naturally. So that's where the dissolution process, as it relates to sports, and what I bring people is very powerful, because if they can you know, step into what I would consider to be my main product, which is freedom, inner freedom, then, hey, presto, they tend to just go back to that default setting of effortless performance. And so far, it seems to be working quite nicely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I like you use the word dissolution. So I've spoken a lot recently about flow and, you know, the experience of flow, one of the characteristics of which is, is the the dissolution of of the experience of of self of me whatever you want to say and then yeah. the the opposite of that obviously which you you spoke to there is is choking feeling the self-imposed pressure and and a characteristic of that is self-consciousness and the thing is i think that's quite a revealing word isn't it self-consciousness because it means you're yeah. being conscious of a self so there's like an i and a conscious yeah. of self so inherent in that self-consciousness is this being split into two isn't it duality and yeah and bipolarism so, <laughs> get yourself some meds yeah <laughs> exactly yeah yeah exactly yeah. so 
Yes. But, when uh, someone yeah. is very self-conscious and, you know, like there's countries and cultures carry certain uh, idiosyncrasies, you know, like the Brits, we're very stiff upper lip and very polite. We tend to be more reserved. And of course, all of this is becoming a bit more of a hodgepodge because there's so much travel and, you know, people across different like cultures and religions and nationalities, and we're sort of blending everything together. But societies do carry certain qualities. And I would say, you know, the the Brits tend to be rather more self-conscious, to use your term, because we, you know, it's about appearances. Now, I could argue that that's for all humans. But, you know, I've been to many countries where, eh, to excuse my French, but people don't give a crap. You know, it's like, they're just very, like, you know, the Aussies are much more like, oh, yeah, no worries, like, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's <laughs> Look, less <Mike>. of, yeah, <laughs> um, there's less of that sort of, concern for how people are perceiving me usually because they're just so drunk they don't know (laughs) (laughs) Um, so anyway so yes the 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 brits i think can relate to that sense of like being concerned for what other people think and it's very tiring it's exhausting and you know it's as you as you're aware it's a survival mechanism right as a As any organism, you know, our primordial incentive is to sort of, or our imperative is to stay alive and to survive. And so we're going to be, for the most part, as a primal s- pattern of protection, very aware of the people around us or our own surroundings because we want to survive. But once you get over that, it's, um, boy, is it very liberating. Absolutely. Now, I often use a bit of a baby analogy, and I know you do too, but mine always goes that, you know, when a baby pops out, right? Okay, Mm -hmm. putting their parents to one side, right? If you and I were were brought 10 newborn babies, like it's immediately obvious that no one could be any better or any worse than any of the other. And they're perfect as they are, right? And, And so that that the, just that isness of them, the just the yes. fact that they just just because they exist. So, can you just then explain to me how you understand how we go from that place where we're yeah. entirely unselfconscious, we'll soil ourselves in polite company without taking a breath. How we go from that to then starting to create these? I think they've been called like guiding fictions. You know, these stories about yeah. ourselves we are unlovable whatever they may be you know core shame what is that process how would you explain it um well the first thing i want to address there's two things right so nothing wrong with soiling yourself first of all let's get that mm-hmm. out of the way because <laughs> <laughs> that's going to happen to the best of us as we get old <laughs> um but yes for a baby there's definitely no concern about it like god bless yeah. them um and and it's subtle, but I think, you know, because you're obviously articulate and you understand the, the I don't want to say precision, but the uh, the impeccability of my la- my work as it relates to language. So you said, you know, there's these 10 babies and they're perfect. So I, I would just get rid of that. I would lean more into your, the, the, the isness that they are there. Yeah. Because perfectionism and the language of perfect is a subjective experience. There's no such thing without some a viewer, without the observer. So there's 10 babies. So you know, then we get into the nature and the nurture conversation. So as far as I'm concerned, because you're asking me and it's my assertion, it's not like it's a fact. uh, There's a couple of things that happen. From the spiritual perspective, my assertion and the way I look at it is that each of those babies, even though they may look very similar in terms of size and appearance, and they can't drive, you know, heavy material, uh, heavy vehicles and make, you know, gourmet dinners and 
you know, but nonetheless, they do carry with them certain codes that we could argue without getting a little too esoteric are from their incarnation that they're here to reconcile. So whilst one baby might struggle with self-value that we can't see currently because they don't even know their name, let alone their nationality or religion or the fact that they're not very good at, you know, geography or something. Another baby might struggle with a sense of intimacy because they don't feel that they're lovable. But that baby, you know, may have a sense of confidence about who they are and the way that they can perform, but they don't feel connected to others. Conversely, the first one that doesn't have a great sense of self-worth in terms of their ability to perform, but nonetheless finds, you know, relatively natural to connect with people and has successful relationships. So I would assert that every human being arrives with their set limitations. Then the nurture part is we will attract the circumstances, the parents, the teachers, the lovers, the jobs that are what I call sort of the equivalent to epigenetics that will then trigger the code that we arrive with. Why does that happen, Peter? Well, so that we can actually reconcile it and play the game that I assert we're here to play, which is to break free of the constraints that we arrived with. So that's interesting. That's interesting. You know, I've done a lot of reflecting on my story and through my story, being able to go, okay, because of this and this and that, that's where the belief that, you know, or my insecurity, you know, was born. Correct. I like the, your way of looking at it though, though, is actually no, the insecurity is there and brings the circumstances to trigger it essentially Correct. which which actually yeah. i really like because it's you know it, we're it's that being in in flow with life you know we are we are life and being in flow with life to me just it's you know it's it's my want it's how i do my thing and i think it's why you know millions of people are like really resonating with my language is that it's going to a deeper level it's not the presumed oh well you know that guy has anger issues because his dad was you know an arsehole, excuse my French. But, you know, it's like, that's why he's got problems. Now, I'm not saying that it was like fun to be raised by a man like that or whatever that child had to witness. And sometimes, God forbid, you know, parents do hit their children. And, you know, there's all sorts of horrific things that go on to children. So in a traditional psychologist's office, the psychologist might talk about the experiences of a childhood. And then what happens is it's easy to go into a blame narrative that I am the way I am because of my parents. Now that I find to be very disempowering because you're still a victim of circumstance. So then I'm talking to a 40, 50 year old executive who's commanding good money, who's got his own or her own spouse with their own children. And they, it's very subtle. And this is why I love the work that I do because it really is these fine lines. But they could have all the trappings of life, but they're still stuck in a victim mindset because they're under the impression that everything that they were dealing with was because of something. What I'm doing is I'm bringing 100% responsibility to the being. That everything, like even for myself, you know, people might think I'm mad if they haven't already come to that assumption. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I would say that my soul in ways that I don't comprehend, it's an unconscious process. Nonetheless, orchestrated, as did the souls of my mum and dad, in terms of a co-creation of all of our existences, the passing of my parents. Now, as a child, I certainly didn't want that. And it wasn't a conscious process. But I can see in terms of the evolution of who I've become, if I was 
now, you know, who I am at my age, and my dad was still alive, obviously, he'd be quite old. But I would never have become the person I am today because I admired, I loved and almost obsessed about who my dad was to the point, like a lot of children, that I would have become who I thought he would have wanted me to become, which would then I'd still be stuck in the auspices of a parent's dream versus my own. So again, even in my own personal subjective experience, the arc of my own journey, I could assert that the events, albeit seeming very devastating were nonetheless orchestrated and again this isn't conscious this is just you know we're talking at a different dimension here but they were orchestrated such that I could become who I'm destined to become and when you understand that one it's empowering because you have a say in it even if it's not like a verbal say and two it it eradicates the idea that anyone's a victim so it gets rid of any need for blame or shame it's like no I might not understand how exactly the circumstances of my life have come together but nonetheless in a way I am asking for life to present me with this opportunity for some form of growth and insight to occur and I think that's just a much more powerful conversation. Hey it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith co-star of my upcoming film If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I am asking for life to present me with this opportunity for some form of growth and insight to occur. And I think that's just a much more powerful conversation. Two things that came to mind. I was just thinking back to when England won the Rugby World Cup in 2003, and they'd Mm -hmm. had various defeats in the previous years, Grand Slam deciders. And and Johnny Wilkinson was saying to me that uh, at the end of that, all of a sudden their psychology had flipped and it wasn't like, when Elton Flatley was kicking to level the scores with like two minutes left to play, they weren't going, please miss, please miss, please miss. They were like, bring it on. We want to be tested. We want what we don't want, if you know what I mean. And that's what you're getting at, right? So that was a thought that came out. And then, so how would you define then a victim mindset? So to the first part, yes, like most people, by virtue of the way that the brain's designed, it's really sort of a prediction machine and then a protection machine based on its own predictions, you know, which when you really break it down is sort of rather nonsensical. And that's what we could call the self-fulfilling prophecy of the mind is that the brain is predicting an outcome, which invariably is not good. And then the same brain is trying to calculate and figure out how to avoid what it just predicted. You know, you just start to wonder, like, was that, you know, 
the way I was going to say it's actually you, you then don't wonder why people have a drinking problem or they need some sort of medication. You know, it's like madness. Like my the one brain is creating concern for a future that hasn't happened yet. And then the same brain that created the worst case scenario is trying to come up with a solution. It's like, no wonder you're freaking exhausted, you know? <laughs> so it's um, a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah so the, unfortunately, most people are focused on what they don't want. And that's a protection mechanism. You know, um, we all have our trials and tribulations and you burn your hand on the stove. Well, then, of course, you're going to avoid the stove because you got hurt. Unfortunately, people get hurt almost every day. And so there's an accumulation of pain and hurt that we've you know, delineated more as suffering. And the suffering is the thing that gets perpetuated because people want to avoid that. So they're in a relationship, you know, they fall in love with somebody, doesn't work out, they cheat on them, they leave them, whatever happens, which is occurring every day for millions of people. And then, of course, the next time they go into a new relationship, there's complete intrepidation, you know. So now they're like worried, and, and rightly so from the human perspective, that they're going to be hurt again, not realizing that this is a human being who they haven't been with, they themselves are a different person. It's a different time in the universe. And so everything is actually brand new, other than the fact that they've got a memory that is still you know, unprocessed, for which reason they're, they're doing everything they can to try and avoid it being relived, not knowing that they're constantly reliving it by virtue of the fact that they're still holding on to it. Mm. That's the madness, right? So that's yeah. the thing that I'm undoing, which again is why you know, perhaps I'm most sought after as I am because people want to be free of the madness of their mind that's creating all of this suffering angst and then all of the escapism that then cascades into their life with alcohol and God knows what else that they're trying to do to numb the pain, you know? So, so that's, um, yes, that's the difference between focusing on what you want versus what you don't want to use your example of the rugby. And that's something with my athletes for sure that is, um, one of the main things that we'll look at, you know, I had an NBA guy who had one of the, well, actually the worst <laughs> uh, league average for free throw shooting, which is, you know, you get fouled, you go to the free throw, you basically get a free throw at it. And it's a pretty relatively easy um, point for a professional. And the average was about 76% for the league and his was about 35%. So, you know, not too good. And um, <laughs> suffice to say, whenever he was standing there at the line, he would get very anxious about missing because that was his history defining his concern for a future that hadn't happened yet, informing his present state of anxiety, create tension that changes his physiology. And then he's not throwing like he would in a, a warm up or in a practice where there's no perceived outcome of any significance. So um, changing all that around for him gave him a totally different view of the future, which was that you know, the way I did it, I said, well, what if I told you that for the rest of the season, you shot the league average of 76%? How would you feel? And his whole face lit up and he was like a child again. He's like, wow, that'd be amazing. And I said, well, what I just told you is as real as the one you're worried about. You know, it's just, they're both made up. We're still sitting in your kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pass me the peanuts, you know? So it's like, you know, you'd start to realize how powerful the mind is in the way that it, 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 actually is self-fulfilling it's just that most people don't understand that the subconscious patterns that are driving their life are self-fulfilling from a position that they don't have any power so that's where the whole blame thing you know and shame is um it, again it becomes nonsensical because people the expression i use people can't be held accountable for that which they're oblivious to 
You know, people say, oh, well, you could have done this or I should have done this when people berate themselves. I'm like, yes, but if you don't know the deep seated programming that's driving your thoughts, feelings and behaviors, then to berate yourself for an outcome that you are familiar with, even though you don't want it, is completely a disservice to who you are as a sentient being doing the best you can. And that's the blind spots that I reveal for people. Then, yes, okay, fine. If I point out to somebody their, their programming that they were previously oblivious to, and then they keep doing the same thing, okay, well, now we can start to maybe, you know, say, well, you, you know, you're just being an idiot. <laughs> mm. You know, you're being irresponsible. And again, I'm, I'm with jest because, of course, these things take practice. You know, just you take a Formula One driver who may struggle around a particular corner because he doesn't know something about that particular, the physics of that, the tires, the ability to grip, the angle that he came in. You know, that's coaching, right? You know, you get you get better at your craft. But when it comes to the deep-seated patterns of what it means to be human and how we think people think about us or our own self-worth or our lovability, these are primal patterns of fear that warrant, I think, a lot more kindness and compassion for each other until such time that we transcend them. And then, yes, we can be free and then focus on what we want, whether we're kicking, you know, punting uh, rugby balls or whatever it is that we're doing. Um, it becomes a process of creation versus reaction. Yeah. So the patterns that we all have that yeah. tend to repeat themselves and, and everyone, and I think, can relate to this. You know, they have something that will yeah. just keep happening in different forms in their life. For me, it happened in my relationships until I think one day I wrote down the names of various people I'd been in relationship with and thought there's definitely one one factor that is common to all of these, and that's me. You know, and, and that <laughs> yeah. that was a real revelation for me. But um, and then and then, but so underneath the pattern though yeah. is a belief, let's say, like of I am unlovable or whatever. So how would you facilitate someone? getting to grips with their pattern and uncovering what is underneath it that's driving it? Um, personally, the way I start with is, you know, uh, again, it may sound a little bit woo-woo and maybe people will think, oh, you spent too much time in America, but I start with love, you know, which is uh, accepting someone for where they're at with whatever their pattern is. Because as I said earlier, people aren't consciously um, ruining their lives. You know, there's mm -hmm. something behind the scenes that's driving these patterns. So, so first of all, I start with love and acceptance, which I think is why people find it very easy to talk to me because there's no judgment from my energy. Um, so that's the what I call the quintessential mother energy, the feminine, which is sort of unconditional. And that's what, you know, mums do a good job of with children, hopefully, not all of them, sadly. But yeah, uh, I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so meet someone there. It's okay. First of all, you know, you're human. You're not the only person to do whatever silly behavior and pattern it is that you have. And then we want to reverse engineer, is the term I use, understand, okay, what kind of person, we almost put it in the third person, what kind of person would do that? Like, why would it be that you would sabotage, in your case, a relationship? Or why would you be needy? Or why would you become withdrawn if you're scared of someone losing you, uh, leaving you? What, 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 what must you think about yourself, which then, as you said, goes to more the, the core beliefs about someone's persona? And that can sometimes take a bit to navigate because it's a bit of a blind spot. For me, it's usually pretty self-evident because I've done this so long that I can pretty instantaneously understand what's holding people back. But by virtue of not wanting to shock their brain, I will help them, guide them to be able to reveal it for themselves. So mm -hmm. then they're like, well, I can see that, you know, maybe I just feel like I'm not good enough. 
okay, I could, I can relate to that. And again, I can feel the words. And if it is something that they're saying generically, because they've, you know, maybe been to one too many um, therapist sessions and heard that over and over, or is it something that actually holds true for them? But let's just say it's, I'm not good enough. Then I would want to bring some evidence for that, you know, aside from current affairs and whatever they're going through, or for you, your latest relationship or your last relationship or whatever it is, like, okay, let's go a bit deeper. Let's go a little further back. Where can you remember some of those things happening in your life that gave you the same experience of not being good enough? And again, that can take a minute for people to recall and go, well, and it's amazing how often things will bubble to the surface when people are in an arena where they feel safe. They can go, gosh, I haven't thought about this for years, but I can remember when I was eight and I was at primary school and they'll come up with this random name, you know, this girl, Jenny, you know, she was making fun of me in the hallway. You know, it gets very specific, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. and, you know, I had done this drawing and she told me that my drawing looked like poo or, you know, something in child <laughs> yeah, language, yeah. you know, and, but that was pivotal for that child to go, wow, from that moment forth, especially as it relates to the feminine, I felt inadequate because, you know, she represented the female and so now any female authority figure, maybe this person is hired in a company where the CEO is a woman and they're not wondering, they're wondering why they can't seem to ascend the ranks and they're not being picked to get an upgrade or a promotion or, you know, they find they get very nervous in the boardroom meetings, but they don't understand why. Um, and as far as they're concerned, even the female CEO really admires their work and likes them, but they're still stuck in the trap of who I am relative to the feminine is inadequate. So, so that reveals it. We bring evidence to it. And then uh, through process of investigation, I take them, you know, sort of a, I guess it's a bit of an IP to my process is, you know, I'll ask them to investigate the truth of that belief and, and ask them to say, is it an actual truth? Yes or no. And mm. even though for them, it feels very true, they can, you know, use their discernment and intelligence and go, you know what, you're right. It's not a truth. It just, it's been there for 30 years, so it feels very true. And at that moment, never gets old. You know, there's a flood of tears, their breathing patterns change, and there's this feeling of complete relief of like, wow, I've that's dictated my life and defined me for decades. And that's the mad thing, isn't it? All of us, to some degree, and certainly up to a certain point, are driven by these stories that we mm -hmm. create normally when we are, let's say, under the age of 10, you know, yeah. when we're, we're egocentric, we misperceive events around us. So I, I think of, for example, let's say, you know, you have a parent who's for their own reasons, unable to be hugely loving in the way you want them to be. And rather than being able to obviously be mature enough and go, they're not able to be loving because of their own issues. You go, oh, I'm unlovable. And then that yes. then drives you basically, yes. you know, for the rest of your life and until yeah. you excavate it. Yeah, absolutely. That's the world that we live in, which is full of madness and sadness and suffering and hostility and corruption and pretense and manipulation and domination and and then the myriad of different escape mechanisms that people need. You know, it's it's a it's a mess. You know, I mean, you look at especially what's going on right now, and certainly when people get in positions of power, but they're still coming from a scared child who's really just trying to dominate to make themselves feel safe and of value. 
when we are young, let's say we're rejected and, you know, the feeling of rejection is not a nice one. And then to what degree do you agree with this? We identify with that feeling. We give it perhaps a storyline as well. We identify with the storyline. So therefore, like you said earlier, reverse engineering that, it's disidentifying from our identification with thoughts, with the stories we hold about ourselves, whatever they may be. And on the one hand, they may be, I'm awful. But on the other hand, they may be, I'm better than everyone else. And that's two sides of the same coin, right? Correct. Yeah, no, beautifully, you've done your work. You know, it's, um, it's um, as I said earlier, why I use the expression, I don't solve problems, I dissolve them. So is that dissolution? In this case, it's the emancipation, not of circumstance, but of the idea of myself and the way that I react to circumstance. It's really pointing to, you know, in Zen Buddhist terms, they use the expression neti neti, mm -hmm. which is not this, not that. We can only point to who we are. We can't actually see it because we're the seer, right? You know, they're, they're, that's sort of the, the beautiful, uh -huh. again, that sort of Zen Cohen kind of like paradox of I am consciousness and I can only witness consciousness, which is myself by virtue of seeing that that is not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, which is know, why self-consciousness is such that term self-consciousness is such a revealing yeah. term yes and and it can have multiple uh, at least two i would say distinct interpretations right we could say the person who's self-conscious which is the idea of oneself the ego or the i that is conscious of itself versus i would say more self-awareness which is self-consciousness i'm aware of my true nature yeah. Right. So I think we could attribute self-consciousness more to the suffering, limited, confined version of ourselves and self-awareness or awakening to, oh, I'm not Peter British, you know, and the things that become associated with the human form, they're helpful. If I'm walking down the street, someone knows me and they say, hey, Peter, like I can turn around. I'm not like, no, I'm just consciousness. Like who's they talking <laughs> to? You know, that's not going to work very well in society either. You know, yeah. but deeper knowing that this this sort of avatar that is my portal into this domain is nonetheless precisely that it's just an interface it's not who i am yes before i ask who you are so <laughs> so so just told you i'm peter i'm from england what's wrong with you mate? <laughs> so um like you say you're very much a quote man you're very eloquent with the way you use words and you know one of yours and i don't want to say it because i think you'll do it much better than I do is is around happiness and the search for it. Can you just talk about that? But then as well about not resisting what is, how those mm -hmm. two things link together. Yeah, beautifully um, sort of Teed married up. there. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also the, just the two distinctions, right? So my quote uh, is, the true happiness is the absence of the search for happiness. And why that ties in, I think, uh, marries beautifully your distinction about resisting is that even over here in the Declaration of Independence, there's the pursuit of happiness is sort of part of that constitution that they put together. And the, the presumption in that is that what I want, what anybody wants, what anyone is looking for is where in our future, right? Mm the pursuit of something. Now, what that does in a very subtle way, and listen, I am incredibly prolific as it relates to pursuing things for the sheer joy. I'm an entrepreneur, I'm creative. 
But if it's to relate to my quote unquote happiness, then I'm also perpetually going to be in a state of mild to severe unhappiness. Just ipso facto, right? If it's the pursuit of happiness, I'm under the impression that my happiness is in the future when one day, you know, I've got the perfect partner, my house is finely cleaned. Won you know, the masters, got, yeah. Won the masters for <laughs> sure. You've got to include that. Um, even if you've never played golf, it's still on the bucket list. <laughs> um, you know, and I've, I've got the, you know, exquisite quintessential six-pack abs, then, you know, that's when I'm going to be happy. Well, all that does is, again, perpetuate suffering because it's saying that where I am, I'm not happy. And more insidiously, that what I have is not what I'm meant to have. Like this, the undercurrent is that the, the circumstances of my life aren't the way it's supposed to be yet, but I'm getting there. Even the expression, mm-hmm. I'm getting there, perpetuates this sort of um, relentless pursuit for something that is this idealized future. And that's exhausting. So that's why I came up with the quote when I realized, wow, you know, I was playing the same game where I was under the impression that Peter of future version is that's where it's going to be amazing, you know, and like, oh gosh. And this is why even retirement, you know, it's just such yeah. a proverbial carrot of like, you know, finally that's when we can relax and we'll have spend more time and we'll finally, you know, plant the tomatoes and, you know, we'll get to spend some more time. No, you, you can barely freaking move because you, you've yeah. lost all sort of mobility by virtue of the fact that you've been in an internal state of suffering. You've used whatever forms of escape, whether it be alcohol, medication or marijuana to appease that, which is to, sort of deleterious to your physiology over time. And then by the time you retire, you're both resigned and sick. And there's not much you can do at all, but go, what the hell was I doing working all that time? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the whole, the, I mean, listen, it's great for business for the people that sell all of these promised lands in the future. Yeah. Um, but as it relates to being a happy, you know, content at peace human being, it's a complete disservice. So, um, the absence of, you know, the search for happiness is true happiness. And I'd say that also can only happen when there's the absence of resistance. The life is the way it is. It, that doesn't mean it's great. And I'm not saying that the circumstances, certainly right now, that people are going through are easy. But to resist them is now you've got difficult circumstance and your own personal resistance. That's a double whammy. Uh, how about you just deal with the circumstance and not beat the shit out of yourself and blame life? You know, that Absolutely, at least gives you a bit yeah. of, yeah. The game does seem to be, for most people, I'm going to at some point line up everything in the world outside of me yeah, and then inside I will feel happy once everything yeah. outside is lined up in a way. But, you know, everything outside yeah. is is always perpetually changing. Nothing stays the same. You mean, you only have to look in the mirror over COVID, yeah. you know, I've got a bit grayer over here. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I looked at you at videos. You didn't used to have a few grays in your beard, or, you know, a few years back. So, you know, things are always changing, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, sometimes it seems people get to that point where they realize, do you know what, that is not working. Right. I can't keep shuffling the deck chairs out there to feel better yeah. inside, at which point then it, it comes back. And you said earlier, you know, love, right? And I know you talk about self-love and you use that beautiful analogy of the parent because I think if people think of love, often they'll think about romantic love, but that's conditional, right? Like if if I Mm -hmm. cheated on my other half, I'm fairly sure she would dump me. So it is to some degree conditional. Whereas for the little girl here, that love is different. And to me, the ideal mother-child love, how do you define that? It's acceptance. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah. love and acceptance go together? They're synonymous, uh, for sure. And again, uh, because there's going to be a lot of parents, I'm sure, who listen to this, and I don't want people to berate themselves that they're not always perfectly no, accepting or loving of their children. And, you know, I think acceptance does with a small A and acceptance with a capital A, they're slightly different, which is, you know, acceptance that we really could delineate as love is all embracing. It, it is all accepting. And within that, it includes me. Right. So oftentimes, especially for the feminine, women become, you know, they're the nurturers, they're the providers, they're the mothers. And I think there's a there's a there's a misperception that love is sacrificial. Right? they have to love. And oftentimes women become overly extended by virtue of the fact that they're very loving of their spouse who's maybe a grump and doesn't acknowledge them or a child that is disrespectful. But the mother just keeps expanding her capacity to love until eventually she has a nervous breakdown or, you know, it's too much. So love is inclusive. So I would say that the love includes her and her own preferences. And, you know, I've got a couple of clients I've worked with recently who've really just, they just really got it. Like it just, they're like, wow, I'd never included me in that. And it's completely transformed not only their view of themselves, their health, but also their relationships. And sometimes, you know, we could say maybe from the outside view in a, negative way because maybe the relationship ended because they're like wait a minute i'm with a man who just doesn't honor me at all and that was my fault because i didn't honor me which was the absence of self-love and i attracted a man to reflect that so it's it's a win-win at the end of the day the relationship has the form ended because the woman found a sense of self-value and for that reason wanted to be with a man who could also meet her there so so yeah, so love, I think, is very misunderstood, as you said, tends to be collapsed with romance. But love is, I would assert, the most powerful energy in the way that we relate to one another from a perspective of I accept you for who you are with everything that's gone. You know, I don't know what you've been through, the cross that you're carrying, the burdens that you have. But from a perspective of love, I can accept you for who you are. And because I love myself, it doesn't mean that I'm going to invite you to come over and spend Christmas with me. <laughs> you know, I still, I still have personal preference, you know, but there's no judgment. It just gets rid of the sadly replete form of judgment and wrong making that we have in society, which we see, especially here in the States. Just any energy that is in any way derogatory to another being, to me, is a sign of ignorance. So to, to kind of summarize then, I mean, I always... You know, to come back to what I said at the start, you know, I, I spent many years trying to fix myself, did a lot of funny things. And then at some point along the way, I realized that I was barking up the wrong tree. And it's, yeah. you know, and it is, it comes back to acceptance. And then what I've found is, you know, when you're able to accept yourself, which is a bit complicated because it's not really necessarily, it's really a mind thing. It's, it's not really something you do, but yeah. the more you accept yourself, then everything starts falling in place. Like it's much easier to accept other people. It's much easier to accept events. That accepting cascade, like yeah. you say, just goes, could you just, Beautiful. could you just speak to that a little bit? You know, cause, cause that, that's, I think the key message I think really is around acceptance. Yeah. I, again, I think you articulated it beautifully, which is there is, it's almost instantaneous. Like I, I like to use metaphors. I think it's helpful for people to have ideas, visuals uh, that they can refer to. But as soon as, say, Simon steps in front of a mirror, there isn't a lag, you know, in terms of when the vision or the reflection shows up. It's instantaneous, right? And I would say the universe is like that. So the degree to which 
we shift resonance in the way that we view ourselves is the degree to which immediately circumstances, now they may not immediately be viewable, but the way that I view life is instantaneous. Like as soon as I have that epiphany, as soon as I have a new perception of myself, then I am just by virtue of physics, a different person. If I'm a different person, I instantaneously have a different view, (laughs) right? And so that's why the hitman for the ego was one of the titles because I'm really getting rid of the idea of yourself to give birth to another version of yourself. But because of your being another version, you literally have to think, feel, and behave differently, which gives rise to a different life. Whereas most people don't change who they are, but they want to have different outcomes. That's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So it really is the acceptance of who I am currently, understanding ideally, if you can, the deep-seated patterns that contribute to who I am, and without judgment, seeing those which I like and those which are a disservice, integrating and discarding those which are a disservice so that then I can certainly bring on board the things I do like, but step into a new version of myself, like the quintessential snake that sheds its skin. I become a new version by virtue of accepting who I am, not Mm. with judgment, because in judgment, you're going to do what you did, which is constantly try and fix myself, which Mm. is only the perpetuation of the idea of myself, versus going, oh, I can see why I have that tendency to be needy or... um, you know, angry relationships or whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. that's okay. Accept it and understand where it comes from. See that the fundamental root of why you have that behavior is founded in some sort of lie about yourself and then transcend that. And then you become a higher frequency version of yourself. It's it's pretty simple. I don't know what everyone's problem is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Well, listen, I mean, Peter, listen, I, I mean, I could talk to you all day and just a summer or finish, I mean, you may have even done it then. For someone listening who mm-hmm. perhaps has resonated with your message and, you know, if you had just some words of wisdom for anyone being like, yeah, I need to get out of my own way, you know, what would you say to directly to someone listening who's perhaps feeling like that? Um, I always like to say the first thing I'd say is it's okay. It's okay. Because I think, you know, to grant someone the permission, which ironically is not mine or anyone to grant, but like people love to hear it, is to give people the relief that they don't have to be different. They don't have to do anything, even in the way you articulated the question. I know it's just a question, but if someone says, I need to get out of my own way, the energy of need creates resistance, right? There's a pressure. I have to do something. So it's okay. You're where you're at. You're who you are. And what if, just for right now, that's precisely where you're meant to be? And at that moment, usually people feel an immense amount of relief, which is the space that gives them the opportunity to see something new. Beautifully put. Well, listen, um, Peter, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Hats off to you. And uh, yeah, speak soon, hopefully. Simon, thanks, mate. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. I would be delighted to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your guest suggestions, your questions. Just get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. And if you could share this episode with someone you know or on social media, I would be very grateful as it does really help people to find this podcast. That's it for now. I will be back with a bite-sized episode this Friday and another full-length episode next week. Until then, goodbye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.